This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. And welcome to another episode of Queen City Nerves News Hounds Podcast. I am Ryan Pitkin, and I am sitting here today with a guest I've been wanting to get on here for a good month now. Um, very special guest, Tijuana Brown, founder of Beauty After the Bars. How's it going, Tia? Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to speak with you today, Ryan, and I'm just gracious to be here. Absolutely, and I, I really appreciate you coming. I know it's a very busy time for yourself. Just last month, you opened your first safe home, S-A-F-E, uh, for formerly incarcerated women. Tell me just a little bit about that before we really get, dive deep into the story of beauty after the bars. So, yeah, we had a grand opening on April the 13th on Lawyers Road. It was very beautiful in Mint Hill, North mm-hmm. Carolina. Well, the maps have been redrawn. The, the address reads yeah, Mint Hill and Charlotte. Right. So. It's on that border. Yeah, it's, it's on Mecklenburg County. Let's it's say Mecklenburg that. Mecklenburg County. You can use use both. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, Mecklenburg County and the city of Mint Hill, uh, the town of Mint Hill, has been very loving, caring, and supportive. Outpouring of support, mm-hmm. donations. What do you need? Hands on. So all right. hands on deck and just really welcoming the women at home. I'm not sure people know what Safe Home is. It's a home for women that are coming out of incarceration, coming out of trauma, coming out of domestic violence. We even take women coming uh, into sober living. Mm -hmm. It is a sober living house, Mm -hmm. and it can be designated as that as well. We do encourage NA and AA. Mm -hmm. Even if you never use drugs or alcohol in your life, like me, there's some type of an addiction. If it's mm-hmm. addiction to money, if it's addiction to men, you know, I had a money crime, and so I was addicted to money, and so it led to the white-collar crime that landed me my federal incarceration sentence. But mm-hmm. we do open our arms wide. We know that when women come home from incarceration, sometimes they lose family. They go in, and their family turn their backs on them. They go in without family, or they come home with family that just don't want to be associated with them. And so when they come home, we say it's our house, but their home, and they can stay as long as they want to, mm-hmm. as long as it takes to get reacclimated back into society, helping them with all their vital records, helping them with employment, helping them with anything that they need help with. And so mm-hmm. we are just generous in that area. And we know that housing is one of the collateral consequences that hang us up mm-hmm. in the system. And when I say hang us up, I mean we have to check the box on applications to say, have we ever been convicted of the scarlet letter F? And I use different language, and I don't call myself, you know, a felony or a convict or mm. ex-con or inmate. And so I'll be teaching education as well during mm. this session on how I address myself and what I answer to. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about that. You had an experience with incarceration, and not only incarceration, but something that you're very uh, passionate about and is obviously very important in this in this issue, which is recidivism, you had three months out at one point uh, and went back in. And tell me a little bit about your story in terms of how you found yourself in a. Because uh, people who aren't justice involved might look down or, or condescendingly and say, "Well, you already experienced the punishment. Why wouldn't you do everything you could to stay out without really knowing how the odds are stacked against folks on their way out? What was that experience like for you before you even got out a second time and decided to sort of 
dedicate your life to helping women in those situations. I would just say people that would say that just ignorant. Right. And don't Absolutely. know what is going on behind the walls of incarceration. So I'm here to educate people. Mm-hmm. I've been out for a very long time. I've been mm-hmm. out for two decades. I'm very successful. And recidivism is a revolving door today. Mm-hmm. I help people that come out today in 2023 that, you know, that right across the street from you, that mm-hmm. courthouse is it's labeled in, in the stamp, you know, People don't always have the resources to be successful, but it's easy to go back. And so I came home and had to check the box and couldn't find a job. And so that will be one of the collateral consequences, not being able to find employment. It's better today, but it's still Mm -hmm. not fixed. There is still some great areas. There are still some areas of opportunities. You still have to check the box, giving Mm -hmm. employees every opportunity to discriminate if they want to. Why not? Let's just remove that off all applications Take me for my credentials and what I bring to the table and give me a fair interview. And, and we are some of the best employees there is. Before I exited out of corporate America, I held down a job for about 20 years, started from the bottom, making $7 an hour, and worked my way all the way up to vice president of, of customer service and, and quality assurance. So that was with T-Mobile, and they gave me a fair opportunity. And so mm-hmm. it was with Sprint first, and then T-Mobile bought them out. And I traveled in three to three countries helping people. Um, in the call center arena, setting up call centers and had a very lucrative income. But I decided that I wanted to do something more. I wanted to have a purpose-driven life. I didn't want to be in a call center anymore. I didn't want to clock in anymore. I didn't want to answer to anybody. And I kind of wanted to use my life testimony as a vehicle and education to support other people. And that's what you see when you see me, when you see Beauty Out the Bars coming. You see a lady that, you know, had a daughter in federal prison, had an opportunity to get involved in um, a pilot program, Mother's Infant Nursing Together, keep my daughter with me for six months, and then bring her back home to my mother that took care of her and my other toddler. When I left to go to prison, I was 20 years old. I was six and a half months pregnant, mm. and I had a almost two-year-old toddler at home. She was days away from turning two. And so we lived in Southside Homes housing projects. And mm. so my mom, I would say that we were poor, but people on the outside looking in didn't know that. But when you start to deal with economics, you start to deal with income mediums and things of that nature. And because I'm so much more intelligent about economics and what it costs to live mm-hmm. in affordable housing, I knew we were poor then. And so I overcame generational poverty. My mother overcame generational poverty, but that's where I was at. So I was poor yeah. when I was convicted of my crimes. And I don't have an innocent story, and I never want anybody to feel sorry for me. But it does not excuse the fact that our justice system, I wouldn't even say it's broken. There's some things that need to be dismantled and redone. And until we do that, we're going to continue to send wonderful people like myself, mm-hmm. who was a young woman um, that was a college student and honor student at John C. Smith at that time. And I was also... Um, on reserve from chilling because I was pregnant, but I was also on the chili the roster. Mm-hmm. And that is public information. All the information can be verified and checked. But I was pulled out of court, and my judge is deceased now. May he rest peacefully, but he was Judge Potter, and he was just mean and evil. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was sentenced to um, almost four years for a white-collar crime, first-time nonviolent offender, as we say, mm-hmm. um, as they say in the justice system. But, you know, when you start looking at the bigger picture, it's been going on for decades after decades after decades. And the reason why I say the way to fix that would be to dismantle and reimagine what justice could look like or what 
we could do as an alternative to people like myself and other people that just don't deserve incarceration as a first time um, coming into that system. But it's one thing I take away from that, and that's being able to overcome adversity, to lead the people that I lead Mm -hmm. that are also directly impacted and their families into a new way of living, Mm -hmm. a new way of life. And so I'm gifted and blessed to be funded by Susan Burton, who has her organization, A New Way of Life, and she started about 20 years ago. And I think I heard her say at our opening that she, after six incarcerations, and she was addicted um, to substance, but she also described it so great that she had a sickness that no one ever tapped into and tried to help her resolve. And that's why that revolving door came. Right. And I know what you mean about how you mentioned it's not uh, necessarily broken because the system is working the way it should. And that's what needs to be dismantled sort of in a way that goes all the way back to the black codes or or different laws that were put in place to just continue to fill prisons, whether that was to get labor or more contemporarily because there's private prisons that make money off of those populations. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, is that sort of what you mean by in terms of like people might think the system is broken and we just need a little bit of reform, but it actually needs to be redone. Well, I don't know who those people would be because uh-huh. anybody that right. thinks that we need reform and see that reform is not working, reentry is failing, that we do need to break down that uh, justice system and we would dismantle that. And the people that do that best will be the people that are actually closest to those problems. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be anybody that's coming out that's been labeled with a number that's assigned to their name or the scarlet letter F or that has been a product of recidivism. Anybody that thinks that the system is broken, it's because they haven't been in the system. Mm-hmm, Once absolutely. you go inside of the system, you know that it's not broken. You know that it's working specifically the way that the specification was done and the way that it was designed. But what I can say is that even when you get inside of there, there is a sense of family. Mm-hmm. Um, we all become family. We work together. We talk about what we're going to do on the outside and how we're going to overcome these barriers that they cannot uh, keep us oppressed for as long as they think that they will. But it's attached to your name for a lifetime. If you Google my name right now and you put uh, the Bureau of Prisons, if you Google Tijuana Brown Mm -hmm. and you put BOP beside it, then it will tell you my age, where I live, and when I was released. Mm -hmm. And so if that is not a system that holds on to you for a lifetime, I don't know what else does. I also would like to share with our listeners and the people that are listening in your, in your population is that I have a fine that was attached to my name when I came home 17 and a half years ago. I am still paying mm-hmm. that fine, and it's because of entrance. So you never get a chance to live again. You mm-hmm. honestly, although I'm not attached to probation, I'm not attached to the United States government in terms of reporting to them, mm-hmm. but I am to a certain degree because I have to report my income mm-hmm. wherever I lay and I sign my social security number at, they're able to track me and I'm able to, um, they're able to track me and I have to pay a percentage of my pay to those fines and fees. And I want to be crystal clear that most of those fines and fees is entrance that the mm-hmm. government has had right. on them on money that's already insured by the FIDC, and I don't know, FID, F, FIDC insured, F- FDIC FDIC, insured, FDIC, yeah. F- FDIC insured, and I don't even know how I would be you know, paying that. So what I have right now is a petition into the White House because of all the good that I've done, because of all the services that I offer through my programs, through my nonprofit, is to be able to get a, a full pardon where also that 
huge and healthy financial responsibility would go away as well. Right. And that's what sort of struck me when I learned your story was, I mean, and I've done a lot of reporting on reentry in the past and things, and this is always the 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 most difficult part is that they put you in a hole that you can't climb out of in terms of you're hit with this fine, almost like, you know, uh, I don't want to compare it to a student loan. It's a whole different thing, but this is, it, it operates. Yeah. Loan. It, it is, operates in the same way. That that interest. Because, I'm sorry. I'll no, go you ahead. Finish. You're good. It's funny you say that because I did have student loan fraud. Mm-hmm. And so I did, uh, I had fraud. Oh. But it was attached to student loans. Mm. And so it is just like that, that interest right. that you would pay, on the student loan is the interest that I'm playing. Plus, I think it's heightened a little bit because mm-hmm. of the nature in which I obtained those loans. Mm-hmm. And the, then that's what turns it into the cycle of financial responsibility. Uh, yeah, it's almost you're in financial incarceration because you can't get a job because you're checking the box. And then if you're not getting a job and it's so hard to find employment, then how are you supposed to pay off these loans? And that's how people find themselves back in because they find start to feel overwhelmed. I mean, I'm speaking as someone without lived experience, but that's what I've heard from many people in the past, just sort of feeling helpless. Yeah. And the the stories don't change. Mm -hmm. The people that uh, come in and they have direct and lived experience, they're telling you that they're trying their best to overcome these collateral consequences, the system um, of oppression, the systems of incarceration, you know, that keeps us down and hold us down. But that financial responsibility is real. It does not go away. Mm-hmm. It does not go away. It stays there. And you are embedded with it and it hunts you down. And sometimes it can be a, a financial disaster. It is definitely a financial hardship. Mm-hmm. It can create a hardship to the point where you're homeless and, and don't have the opportunity to live and thrive. Again, I come from a family of love. Mm-hmm. I have never been homeless. I knock on wood. Thank goodness for that because of my family members. But I told you I overcame generational poverty. And if anybody that's listening on the sound of my voice, no Brook Hill, no West mm-hmm. Boulevard, no Southside, no Wilmore, all of that area is the area that is my foundation of my family, the fruits of our labor. And so that's where I come from. And so mm-hmm. I would truly say that anybody that knows the federal incarceration system would agree with that a financial hardship is something that is a barrier, a huge barrier that we definitely need to work on mm-hmm. coming up with a different way. And that simply means we need to reimagine what paying back fines and fees and responsibilities are. After, for instance, people spend decades in prison, right. 20, 30 years, and they come home with millions of dollars in fines. They've already lost three decades of their life. I don't know if that's a fair sentence for someone, right. depending on what the crime is. I'm not the judge here, but I will say that you know the mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines Those things are put in place. They're pretty firm. And so people just have to get what the courts give them. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, coming home, you're not able to survive. It's just hard. Tacking on financial debt. Financial debt for the rest of your life. And I circuit back around to wanting to do something. People, one would think, well, wow, you've been through a lot in that system. Why do you want to give back? The only way to give change is to create change from the change from the people that need to see the change. Mm -hmm. And I'm one of those people. And I would say, you know, a lot of people, they're in a closet. They're like, I don't want anybody to know I've been arrested. I don't want anybody to know I've been incarcerated. I can relate to those people as well. As for me and my path, I want to continue to fight um, with my story. I want to to continue to fight by providing support to the women that need it the most. And I just want to be a vessel I want to be that bridge between the gap and the justice system. Let them know that, hey, I've been there too. And we know that it's hard, 
but there is a path and there are women and there are men that are waiting to hold your hand, meet you right where you at, lift you up and give you that opportunity to be successful. Where do you turn to stay in touch with the city around you? Broadcast news isn't what it used to be. And commercial radio doesn't scratch that itch. If only there was one place you could get it all, when you want, wherever you want, on your schedule, there is the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city on your schedule at queencitypodcastnetwork.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. You've been out, like you mentioned, around 20 years now, and you didn't just jump right from the corporate world to like snap your fingers and say, I want to do this community work now. It, it was a gradual thing, right? Like you had been doing, like you, you, you didn't come straight out doing that sort of services for folks or, or, or running beauty after the bars, but it also was a, it was a slow transition, right? In terms of how, how you started your community work. Well, I've always been in the community. I've always been someone that, you know, volunteer mm-hmm. at churches, giving out food, food banks and stuff like that. But as for my path with Beauty After the Bars, yes, I had two small children. Mm-hmm. So it was a sense of embarrassment for my family, um, for my incarceration. I was also still young, and my daughters were in school. They were cheerleaders. They were very popular. And I don't think that my darkness, I should overshadow their life. I had school teachers. I had... Um, counselors in the school that will Google my name and, you know, will be whispering and mocking Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, Antoinette and Tajima were very beautiful girls, well-dressed and well-mannered, but their mom had been incarcerated. I don't understand what that had to do with me being a mom that was very involved in cheerleading, very involved in the PTSA. I actually wrote to uh, CMS at that time and told them that even though I had some charges that will keep parents out of being in the PTSA, keep parents out of being directly involved in my children's life. I had to be because I was a single mom and their father was incarcerated also. Mm-hmm. So we could not lose my children to the to the system. Right. So I had to step up and do something different. So I was very bold, very courageous. I told my story from day one when I stepped out of prison in isolated instances. So that would be, no, I wasn't vocal and out in the public. It was a transition that, was um, created when the opportunity presented itself. I was in corporate America and I was tired. I, I, I knew that it was something bigger for me to do that had a greater calling on my life and that I couldn't work in corporate America. And I knew that it was going to be serving women that came out of incarceration. I would Google, you know, what women were doing when they came home from prison. How could I get involved? And then I found an organization um, called the National Council for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and girls. And we're all over the world, and I became a member of that. Mm -hmm. Then I graduated up to being on the board. I also worked very close with Ramona Brandt. I'm not sure if you remember Ramona. Mm -hmm. Ramona was released by Barack Obama. And the weekend that she died, um, we had just left Duke University, getting Mm -hmm. ready to start a different project for women. So, yes, um, I would say today, there are opportunities and there's grassroots organizations out there ready to hold the hands of individuals like myself. Mm-hmm. Two decades ago, you know, it was different. It wasn't 
as vibrant as it is today. It wasn't as popular. There wasn't as many people tuning in. We didn't have as many allies. We were all that we had. But today, everybody wants a piece of criminal justice reform, social justice, advocating for people like myself. But before they begin to do that, they have to stand behind the ones that are directly impacted. We know what we need, and we have a slogan that we say nothing about us without us. You can't tell us what we need if you never walked in our shoes or you ever walked in our paths. So to to circle back around to your question, yes, Mm -hmm. it did take time for me only because of my family and because I had small children that were involved that I was trying to protect because bullying and harassment is real. And my daughters did experience some of that, Mm -hmm. calling them jailbirds, jailbabies, and things of that nature because Mm -hmm. one of my daughters was actually born while I was in the custody of the Bureau of Prisons. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Ramona Brandt. uh, Rest in power to her, for sure. I had to... Rest in power, uh, Did... get the privilege to meet her one time at an event at QC Family Tree and some others were holding over on Wilkinson Boulevard and just an amazing person. Um, Speaking of sort of icons in this field, you mentioned earlier Susan Burton who came to your opening and she had founded, I think she's founder of A New Way of Life. Um, And they sort of created the model for the home that you built, the safe home model. Um, Tell me a little bit about what it means to her, how you connected with her and what it means to be working under sort of the umbrella of this model that she created and what made you believe that this is the way to go in terms of opening this, this safe home. Well, Susan Burton is definitely an icon in this field. We call her the Harriet Tubman, the modern-day Harriet Tubman mm-hmm. of today. But Susan Burton has been doing this for decades. The model is proven. There's a training out there. Um, Susan Burton is so dedicated and commitment. Uh, she's so dedicated and committed mm-hmm. to making sure other people that are leaders in the arena that may not have accomplished everything that she's accomplished but have the potential to do so to teach us, for us to unlearn, to relearn again, her model is a no-brainer. It, it's not something that you can just copy and do. So I kind of feel honored and privileged to submit my application, go through the training, and then be selected to be a part of the Safe Housing Network because we have uh, 31 approved replicas mm-hmm. in 18 states and four countries, and I'm one of them. I'm the only mm-hmm. one in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, in the surrounding area. So that is a huge pat on the back for me to do this work. So it was a no-brainer to, uh, there are hundreds of people that apply for a program every year and don't get accepted. So for her to see something in me that I may not have even seen in myself, to say, hey, you can do this work. And I want you to know that I went to several of her trainings and I felt that I wasn't ready. And then on that third time I went to the training, I said, hey, yeah, I think I'm ready for this. Oh, that's awesome. You know, because it's deep-rooted with this work. It re-traumatizes you. You relive everything all over again. Whenever you pick somebody up from the bus station, which is right next door to you, or you go to a court support hearing in the courthouse, and you guys are uniquely located, um, it does re-traumatize you. You have to find that strength that surpasses all understanding to be able to do this work because keep in mind that there is still some healing that you have to do. Keep in mind that also that I'm still embedded inside of the justice system because of that financial responsibility. So some things just don't go away. So when you walk in that courtroom and you have to lock your phone up or you have to leave your purse in the car, you're like, okay, here I go again, and you're reliving all over again. So to be connected with people like Susan is just a constant reminder that we are changing. Our will is turning in the right direction, and we just have to keep going and keep moving it. Right. And just tell me a little bit about what the experience has been like for you opening this home um, and seeing your work sort of in you've, you're not you're not new to 
like as we've gone over throughout this podcast, you're not new to this sort of work and being in this field, but to see this physical manifestation the, of this home and the people living within it, what has that been? What's the experience been like to you? It's an aha moment, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it lets me know that whenever you put your mind to set to do, whenever you set your mind to do something, you can do anything you want to do. It is for the naysayers that doubt us, that want us to check the box, that want to ban us, mm -hmm. that want uh, to keep us out of the room, keep us out of certain arenas that we just create our own table. Mm -hmm. We don't have to access it at anybody's table anymore. We create our own table. Support and allies has been overwhelming. And just to see it, sometimes I sit back and I say, wow, I really did it. But you keep going because there's more. You know, you got a house that can hold eight to ten. Mm -hmm. There's one being renovated right now on Bettysford Road, and the guy sent me some pictures, and it's just absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I'm very excited about that. So with Bettysford Road and with Lawyers Road, we're talking about anywhere between 18 and 20 women, but the need is greater than that. I think I had a request at the time of opening for 23, where that's went up to like 33. And so mm -hmm. it's just going to continue. You got to understand that women is the fast-growing population to incarceration that there is and coming home with no support. Men are supported more than women. Mm -hmm. The ratios and the scales are imbalanced. And so I see that, and I look back and say, okay, I've done that. Now what's the next thing we need to do? Right. What's the next step? How do we sustain it? How do we create revenue? How do we build a budget that's sustainable, that we can bring people in to support these women and that we can keep going? As Susan said, and she said on NBC, and uh, uh, in, in NBC, that she want to see a safe home on every corner. So every woman that needs somewhere to place, that needs a place to stay, and I want to say a safe place to stay, will have that place to stay. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I've I've heard you speak about it before, and I was brought back to it listening to, of all people, his celebrity culture, listening to Papoose speak about it with Remy Ma, the rapper, about him going to visit her when she was incarcerated and seeing that he was like the only male in there uh, almost every single time. Uh, I don't think people really, I don't really have a question for you about this, but I just don't think people really, uh, really grasp that if they're not involved in the justice system themselves. It's just sort of the lack of support that uh, women get women throughout are, incarceration. Women are, women are supported. Women are the least supported mm -hmm. and incarcerated when it, versus men. The empty the visiting rooms are empty and when you do see the visiting room you'll see the mom, mm -hmm. which will be the grandmother, or, you know, some other family member, which is mostly most of the time it's it's a woman mm -hmm. bringing in them for visitation. I know my mom, you know, led that role and and did that role for me. But recently one of my friends was released. I went to the visiting room, males all in the visiting room, mm -hmm. women all around. And it shows that women will be the backbone and be the foundation of support. Standing strong and being loyal to sometimes what we don't need to be loyal to. And women are just left by the wayside, mm -hmm. which hence goes back to why we're opening up these safe houses and why we cater to women. Mm -hmm. I've had people call and say, why not men? I say, why don't you start something right. for men? As for me, I love men and I care about men, but I'm going to support the women because that's where we see the need at. That's where the gap is. That's where the deficiency is, and that's where we're going to be at. Right. And you mentioned your mother. I, I saw it. We had traded some emails after the fact. I would, had wanted to be there at the opening, but you had sent me some pictures, and I know your mother was there to see you open this house in Mint Hill, uh, Mint Hill slash Charlotte. Um, what did it mean to sort of let her have her be there at a moment 20 years later after those visits and, and her support for you? My mom never get the incarceration over um, – it never goes away. Mm -hmm. You know, 
I think what we can touch on real fast here is that your family members are scarred by the incarceration too. Mm -hmm. I had a little sister who's very successful. She was 16 at Miles Park when I went away. And she's very successful. She lives in Maryland, and, and she has two children, my niece and my nephew, very close with my family. My mom was scarred by incarceration and also had a slight stroke that she recovered from. Um, her mouth twisted a little bit. It's, she completely healed from that. And I think that my mom seeing me today, my mom and I are very close, first of all. Let's be crystal clear right. on that. She knows my every step. She knows my every move. She knows I wake up at 6 in the morning, go to bed at 2. Mm -hmm. Get back up at 6 and do it all over again. And she said, I'll see you in the morning. I just want to make sure that you're safe, that you're taking care of yourself, that you're using self-care because I go so hard. Right. And the reason why I go so hard is because I know what lies behind the women mm. that are coming home. You know, They can look back. You know what lies behind them is that revolving door. Mm. And if we don't have people out front meeting them, we meet them while they're inside. We try to reach them while they're in their incarceration. Right. Reaching them while they're in those doors and letting them know that we're here to support them. So my mom is very happy, very humble, and very proud of me. And my mom is a very spiritual woman. She um, prides herself in being close, connected to inspiration. We have a family uh, text message, group text, and my mom sent out the extra inspirational messages every day in that text. So my mom and I are very connected. I would say that she is my best friend now. You know, I am very close to her and my sister, and that's a triangle that can't be broken, as well as my daughters. I'm very close to my daughters, and I just want to lead by example. My mom, seeing me come out of what I came out of is immeasurable. Mm -hmm. it's, I can't even put it into words, the joy that my mom have, And it's not even a joy of being able to support her financially, because I do, and I, I owe that to her and a whole lot more. I can never repay her the debts of raising my two beautiful children while I was incarcerated, taking her through all the turmoil of running back and forth through not only the federal court system but the state court system and all the times that I've been arrested. I can't repay my mom for what she's done. There is no price to put on, there's no price tag to put on uh, the amount of sacrifices my mom made. The sacrificial love and her guidance and her endurance has made me the woman that I am today. The way that I repay my mom is by walking in the light and the path that I walk today. Right. That's how I repay her. That's beautiful. And you you mentioned that you go hard. Uh, you, you came in here on the phone dealing with stuff going on at the house, and I'm sure that as soon as you leave here, there'll be more people who, who need you. Um, I mean, what has the experience been like in terms of unseen obstacles or just stuff that now you're in this administration role um, of just uh, unforeseen Challenges. Oh, there's obstacles every day. I got every a phone day. call today with some very disturbing news related mm -hmm. to the business, and it just blew me away. But, you know, what happens is you keep going. Mm -hmm. I tell you people that, you know, I've been knocked down. I've been on a very, let me tell you, incarceration for me is close to death, mm -hmm. and you can't get no lower than that. And so even though I get those phone calls, even though we get those um, obstacles, I troubleshoot. I am a troubleshooter. And I work through stuff, and I try to be the same every day. I try to be positive and inspiring and uplifting, meeting people where they at, not really taking on the trauma, but creating an opportunity for them to work through their own trauma mm. because I still have my own that I'm dealing with. But you're right. The phone rings. I have two of them. You got one message. They'll text you on one phone, mm -hmm. then they'll text you on another phone. Mm -hmm. Somehow my personal phone number has gotten out there. It's right. okay. I answer both of my phones, but I would like. Now, when I go in vacation mode, I do 
Yeah. I don't answer those phones. I'm not in vacation mode right now. Mm-hmm. I will be in a couple of weeks. But yeah, it's going. And you know, you know what it is? It's just working through it because mm-hmm. adversity is gonna come. Opposition is gonna come. Everybody's not gonna be happy about us being in that community. But the love and the support outweighs the opposition, and so we move forward with the love and support. We don't worry about the opposition. The right. opposition have to worry about themselves because we have done everything right to be in that home. And I think that, you know, just knowing that we've done everything right and we're creating a new opportunity for someone that very desperately needs it, mm-hmm. we're going to keep going. Absolutely. But, yeah, I'm very busy. I yeah. am overwhelmed. <laughs> I am overwhelmed. And so we are in the process of building the budget and fundraising and creating revenue so that we could have other staff members come in and, and hold that weight. So, you right. know, uh, project manager, program manager, house manager, um, paid volunteers, mm-hmm. you know, because people time is very, very valuable. Right. And that's all the more reason why I'm appreciative of you coming in here. I'm going to let you get out of here soon, but just to sort of wrap up, you mentioned the the house on Beatty's Four that's going through renovations now. Is that something you're consulting on or is that a beauty after the bars project? Is no, that it's, a- all my, it's already mine. We were already, okay. that was going to be the grand opening. But we flooded. There was a uh, Oh, a so pipe. that's up there on Magnolia. It's or right si- near the Magnolia Estates, I assume? Uh, it's 1611 Beatty's Four. Oh, okay. I, See, I just know that there's an estate over there. It's adjacent from that... Alicia mm. Brown for the Struggle, Inc. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I know where Our she's office at. are adjacent, yeah. yeah. And so we, we're partners. We do some work together. But it's right on the corner. It's a beautiful brick home. It's, mm-hmm. it's older. And um, so the house in the inside... It's just beautiful. They sent me the work that they've done, and it just blew my mind. It's mm-hmm. like a totally different home. But that was going to be the grand opening. Yeah. Quite naturally, I wanted it to be the grand opening. I'm born and raised in Charlotte, mm-hmm. historically black community that's still corridor. standing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. John C. Smith over there, which I'm mm-hmm. a student at, holding the 4.0. West Charlotte is over there. Um, just a lot of black businesses that we're trying to sustain right. and maintain is over there. So I definitely wanted it to be the grand opening, but it didn't happen and didn't fall that way. Um, and so we're also looking at, I'll tell you um, right now, we're looking on Mallet Creek and Clinton Road as the next two okay. uh, safe homes. So we're going to be in a, about a total of four. That's amazing. by September. Yeah. And growing. Opening by September? Opening by September. Wow, that's amazing. Opening by September. Heard it here first. Well, that's really exciting. Heard it here first. You did. Um, because I didn't even know it until today. So right. you definitely Oh, that's awesome. Today. That's great. Um, is there anything we haven't touched on that you think is important to mention that we that we haven't discussed quite yet? You did an excellent interview. I'm happy to be here. I would just like to say that when we're supporting people in conservation, we have to support them without prejudice. We have to support mm-hmm. them without biases. We have to support them without putting labels on them and give them a fresh start. What it is, restoring humanity back into people. And the only way to do that, when you start calling them convicted felon, when you start using words like inmate or ex-con or repeat offender, all that does is take the humanity out of people and it crushes their soul. But when you say things like they're returning home, they're humans, it's the mother that went away because of the transgressions that they did. It's the grandmother, it's the sister, it's the daughter, it's the aunt that's been missing from their family for so long. And we need the community just to be there to meet them right where they're at. That is when you can see a community loved and a community engaged. And that's what, I, that's what I'm trying to create. Absolutely. Well, Tia, I really appreciate you coming in. It's definitely a, uh, an insightful and fulfilling conversation. And I'm glad, that, glad to have uh, been here chatting with you. But thanks for coming in. And everybody follow along with the, the website for Beauty After the Bars. It's Beauty After the Bars. Absolutely. Dot com or dot org? Beauty After the Bars dot com. And okay. 
Instagram is also at Beauty at the Bars. Facebook is Beauty at the Bars. Everything is Beauty at All the right. Bars. All right, cool. They're easy to find and look them up and see how you can support. Uh, be plenty of more openings coming this year. But thanks for coming in to you. I appreciate you. Ryan, we appreciate you as well. Have an awesome day. Right, you too. Bye-bye. Cheers. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Thank you.